Well, good morning. I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Well, in seminary, they teach us that when you're writing a sermon, they use the illustration of building a house. You're supposed to build the house first before you get to the front porch or the back porch. The house is the body of the sermon, and the front porch is the introduction, and the back porch is the conclusion. And sometimes you run out of time, and the front porch just kind of gets stapled on to the house. I sat down last night uh, on the couch with my wife, and she asked me how the, the writing of the sermon was going, and I, I said, well, it's, it's good, except I don't have an introduction yet. I have all these grand ideas, uh, all these different scenarios in history that I want to use, and, but they're just too complicated. And um, she asked me what the theme of the sermon was. I told her, and as she began talking, I was like, that, that's it. The Lord's giving me an introduction. It was pretty cool. As you know, my wife and I served in the U.S. Army together, and uh, my wife went on two different combat tours, although she never saw combat personally, she went on two different combat tours. Myself, I had never done that. And she reminded me, you know, whether you're training for combat or you're in combat, you're always walking around with your weapon, right? You go to sit, if you're working at a a computer, you know, you go sit at a computer, your weapon's there slung around the front, right? It's not on your back because you can't get to it. Um, You go to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, your weapon's with you. You go to work out, your weapon's with you. Yes, when you go to take a shower and you use the restroom, your weapon is with you. You lay down to sleep at night and your weapon is with you. This morning's title is A Life of Combat. A Life of Combat. And that picture is really, uh, helps remind us uh, that we always need to have our weapons with us, our armors with us. In this text, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, Paul gives us three commands for the trenches of the Christian life. Three commands for the trenches of the Christian life. Let's read the text together, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The first command we see this morning is be strong. Be strong, or you might label it the what. In other words, what are we to do in the trenches of the Christian life? Paul begins by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now, when Paul says finally here, yes, he's coming to the conclusion of the letter of Ephesians, but it's more than that. He's coming to the climax of the second half of the letter. We've been talking about our practice in Christ, how we walk, right? And this is the climax of, of how we walk. The, the word finally there could very easily be translated for the remainder of your days or from here on out. So for the remainder of your days, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Until the Lord comes, Christian, we're going to talk about spiritual combat or he takes you home, you're going to live a life of combat. The next major event in redemptive history is the Lord's return. Now the command here, be strong, is a passive command. You'll remember that a passive command is one that's done to us, right? I used the illustration a sermon or two ago, I'm not sure, 
of the difference between brushing your hair and going to get your hair cut, right? Your mother says, go get your hair cut. Uh, that's a passive command. You're not actually the one, although maybe some of you do cut your own hair. You're, normally, we're not the ones that cut our own hair. We have to cooperate with the means. We have to get in our car or get in our older sibling's car or get in the, the car with our parents and drive to the barbershop or the salon and get our hair cut versus an active command or, or a middle command. You're doing it to yourself. So here we have a passive command. We need to cooperate with the means that God has given us in order to be strong in the Lord. So how do we cooperate with this command, be strong? What are the means that we are to use? Well, the Bible teaches us that there are different means, right? Reading our Bibles, uh, then seeking to apply it to our lives, prayer, submitting ourselves to the preached word, serving in the church. These are all particular means that God has given us. But I would suggest that there's one particular mean here, means here, implicit in the text, of how we are strong in the Lord. It's humility. Christ's strength, or the Christian strength in Christ, I should say, is found in humility. In order to be strengthened in the Lord, you must first recognize your utter weakness. The lie Satan sells in our culture is that we need to have self-confidence, self-esteem, self, a strong self-image, so on and so forth, in order to be a strong individual. But these are just softer words for what? The sin of pride. Think about Paul when he was given the proverbial thorn in the flesh. Speaking of this thorn in the flesh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul then goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, Scripture teaches this principle everywhere. And you know it. You know it well, right? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me just give you a, a sampling to remind you again. And I'm going to go through a bunch of verses here, but you just jot down the references so that you can return to them later. And be thinking about, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Psalm 138.6, For Yahweh is exalted, yet he sees the lowly, but the one who exalts himself, he knows from afar. In other words, he does not know him personally. Proverbs 3.34, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet Yahweh gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 29.23, a man's lofty pride will bring him low, but a lowly spirit will take hold of glory. And then in the New Testament, Matthew 23.12, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself, shall be exalted. James says in James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, you young men, be subject to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Some of you sitting here today may have never humbled yourself before the Lord. You live a prideful, self-serving, sinful life. And we're going to talk about spiritual combat here in this passage. But to be honest, that text doesn't apply to you because you're not on God's side. You're not in his army. You're still fighting against God. There's no middle ground Right? There's no no man's land. There's no riding the fence. You don't get one foot in one kingdom and one foot in the other kingdom. Some of you are still 
chained to your sin, captive by Satan, and fighting tooth and nail against humbling yourself before God. And you know it. Some of you are self-deceived, thinking that you know God, thinking that you have submitted to him, but you haven't. Scripture again and again says that today is the day of salvation. To turn from your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and cry out to him for forgiveness and trust the blood only. Don't wait. You're on the wrong side. You know the end. The war has already been won. You just continue to fight against the winner. Humble yourself before God and he will show you grace. He will welcome you with open arms. Now for those of you who have repented of your sin and turned to Christ and are part of God's army, the same humility still needs to be applied throughout the Christian life. Right? Think of a, think of a traveling child. Maybe some of you have younger uh, siblings or yourself still. You go on vacation with your, with your parents, right? Well, I mean, they pay for your plane ticket. They play, pay for the gas and the car. They pay for all the food that uh, you consume or your younger, your younger brother and sister, sisters consume, right? They sustain you throughout that traveling, and they sustain you when, you know, you're at home as well. The same is true of us. Everything that we have is from the Lord. Yes, we work, and he rewards us, but we need to remember that he is the one who sustains us. Think of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Although the context is con contentment in all situations, the principle remains the same. Our source, the source of our strength is Christ. We must actively seek for the strength and might of the Lord, and this cannot be done without humbling ourselves. That's verse 10. Verse 11, Paul gives us the second command. Put on the full armor of God. Put on, or the how, verse 11, the first half of the verse. In other words, when I say the how, I mean how are we to be strong in the Lord, right? Besides humility, Paul gives us this reason here. This command is in the middle voice, meaning that you are actually the one who is putting the armor on. And yet the overall context of Ephesians is that we're not in this alone, right? I mean, maybe you've seen movies where knights are putting on all that shiny armor, right? They, they can't ever put it on all by themselves. They need help putting it on. The same is often true in the Christian life. Both the, the, the command put on and the you in this verse is in the plural. And then Paul switches in verse 12 to include him say, himself saying our. This is a corporate struggle as a church. Spiritual combat is not meant to be a one-man show. Although Satan often likes to make us think that it is a one-man show and that we can fight this sin on our own. Remember, remember James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We cannot fall into the trap or, or believe Satan's lies that we can fight this sin all on our own. Remember the theme of Ephesians. In him, our position in Christ, not my position in Christ, right? This is a, a, a letter to a corporate body. Paul goes on to say, put on the full armor of God. Now, I'm not going to get into the details here about the, about the armor of God because that's exactly what Paul does in the subsequent verses. But think with me, where is Paul writing this letter? 
right? Is he in his, you know, I don't know, in his mother-in-law's cabin behind their, behind their house, right in, in the nice fireplace, the coffee there, or whatever they drank in the first century, I don't know. Where is he? He's in Rome, and he's under house arrest, right? And so although, you know, he's not in a, in a prison cell per se, his friends are able to come and minister to him, he's under house arrest. And today, under house arrest, we have those fancy little bracelets. I'm sure none of you have ever seen them, right? You put a bracelet on your foot or your ankle, and then the police can monitor, monitor you on a computer how far have you gotten from the place you're supposed to be. But they didn't have that, obviously, in the first century. So who was there with Paul? A Roman soldier. So as Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, right, he wants you to know your, your position in Christ, right? You've been you know, elected by the Father before the foundations of the world, right? You were dead in your sin, but, but Christ has made you alive. God has made you alive, and now he's brought Jew and Gentile together, and it's, you're in one corporate body together. And then the second half of the letter, right, you're practicing Christ, and he's sitting there thinking, but this practice is hard. I, I, Paul knows, right? I mean, he's, he's in prison for preaching the gospel, and he knows his own struggle with his own sin. Read Romans 7. And he looks over at the soldier, right? We're using a little bit of sanctified imagination here, right? He's, he sees the Roman soldier, and, and through the inspiration of the Spirit, he pens these words. So he's sitting there looking at a Roman soldier, more than likely. Now, as I mentioned, my wife and I, we were in the army, and I remember pretty distinctly the first time I, I got some, some armor and I got uh, some different things uh, issued to me in the army, and one of the things, obviously, is body armor, right? You put it on, you're like, man, this is pretty cool. Like, I got this, uh, people can shoot me, and I'm fine, right? Hopefully. But, but after, like, the first 30 minutes, I was like, this is not that fun anymore. This thing is heavy, and I don't really like it. And then, you know, you go run around all day, and you're jumping over things and crawling under things, and you're like, well, I mean, who wants to have another 30 pounds just hanging out on them? You want to take it off. But you can't take it off, because the armor of God is spiritual armor, and it's for life. John MacArthur says it's a lifelong companion. William Gurnall, the 17th century uh, writer of the Christian Incomplete Armor, says that the Christian's armor and his garment of flesh come off together. You see, we wear God's armor for the rest of our earthly days. And praise the Lord that it is spiritual armor and that it isn't heavy, because the only thing worse than having to wear armor all day long while you're jumping over things and crawling under things and playing army in the woods or whatever you're doing is then having to go sleep in the woods and continue wearing the same armor. You want to take it off, you get tired. But the Lord's armor is not physical armor, it's spiritual armor. And it's necessary, and we must wear it because we are prone to spiritual attacks day and night. So Paul has given us the first command, the what. What are we to do? We're to be strong in the Lord. And he's given us the second command, the how. How are we to be strong in the Lord? We're to put on the full armor of God. And now before Paul moves to the third command in verse 13, he gives us a couple of specifics. So under those first two major commands, uh, you can put, you know, little a or little b or whatever. Uh, little a, the why. Why must we follow these commands? And then b, the nature of spiritual combat. I'll give you the why first. Why must we follow these commands? This comes in verse 11b where Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and put on the full armor of God so that you will be able or you will have the power to stand firm against the schemes 
of the devil. Notice the verb in this clause is to stand, stand firm. We often think of standing as a, as a more passive position, but it's not. In this sense, it's an active position. You know, in my, my travels with the army, my wife got to travel to the Middle East. I got to travel to Southeast Asia a lot. And on one of the, t- one of the times we went to Southeast Asia, we were training the Indonesian army. And we were training, one of the things we were training them on is combatives. And as a display, right, we put two guys in front of a, a bunch of Indonesian soldiers and we had one, you know, one guy stand like this, and then you know, one guy just kind of stand there with his arms in his pockets. You know, there's a language barrier, obviously, so you're looking for illustrations. And we asked them, well, which one would you rather fight? And, I mean, the obvious, obvious answer is the one who's just kind of hanging out and not paying attention with his hands in his pockets, right? That's the kind of standing that Paul is talking about here. Not just a passive standing, but an active standing, ready to be hit from any direction. It can be defined as... In the inability to be moved or, or the ability to resist, right? The word carries the idea of being steadfast and immovable. Immovable specifically against Satan's schemes. And, and what, is, what does the word scheme here mean? It means a, a procedure or a process or a strategy. And it often carries the idea of a, a military strategy or cunningness, right? Where deception is involved, you have any history buffs here, maybe you know something about World War II history. The, in Nazi Germany, they used uh, what they called a, a blitzkrieg, right? It just means lightning war. And the Nazis took the information that they had from World War II and how, the, or excuse me, World War I, how the, the Allies had responded in World War I to their attacks, and they just paid attention to human nature in general. And they sent a bunch of troops up into the northern countries of Holland and the Netherlands and Luxembourg. And when the France and the British, the French and the British came up to defend those countries, what did they do? They slipped up underneath and they cut them off and they went all the way to the ocean. And within five weeks, they controlled all of Western Europe. They were very cunning and they paid attention to human nature. Satan does the same exact thing. Except Satan has thousands of years of experience. And we can fall into two traps here when we talk about Satan. We can blame everything on Satan and in an unhealthy way where we're, we're, we're not taking responsibility for our sin, but we're blaming Satan for our sin. Or, I think more likely, living in a, in a post-enlightenment society, society, we can ignore Satan, right? We, we know he exists um, we know what the Bible teaches, but we kind of forget uh, that he's out there trying to get us. I think we're more prone to fall into that second trap. And we need to remember that Satan is a personal being. He was created by God. Yes, he was created good by God and perfect. And then he chose to sin because he wanted to usurp God's position. And, and like I said, he's been at this for thousands of years. Think, think of what you enjoy doing, whether it's uh, playing a musical instrument Uh, playing a sport, or some kind of, I don't know, woodworking, I don't know, whatever you're into. Imagine if you had a thousand years to hone that craft. You'd be a pretty good basketball player now. I mean, hopefully. You'd be pretty good at playing whatever instrument you enjoy playing. The same is true. Satan has had thousands of years to hone his craft, and he's after you. Remember what 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking 
to, for someone to devour. So why does he do this? Why does he seek someone to devour? Why are his schemes against us? Because he hates God and he hates you. I've been drawing the comparison between, or I did draw the comparison between, you know, there's no middle ground, right? You're either have repented of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you're in his army or you're still a slave to your sin and under Satan's control. And listen, the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves his sheep. He loves those who are his. Satan hates you. He hates you. He wants you to think that uh, because you, know, you get to do what you, you want to do and you're the captain of your own soul or whatever lie you're believing, that that's good. But it's not. He hates you, and he knows that it's going to bring about your swift destruction. Although the schemes of Satan are many, Scripture teaches that the foundation of his scheming and his devious, manipulative ways is always lying. Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Guys, that is a profound statement. His very nature, the thing that Satan is made up of or or with is, is lies. This is why we must put on the armor of God. Now, before we we move on to the nature of spiritual combat, I, I do want to circle back for a second to the idea of this standing firm. Um now, it is a primarily a, a defensive position, but ready from all positions. And why is it that it's primarily a, a defensive position? You, you know the picture. A nation conquers another nation, and what do they do? They raise a flag, right? And this is our land now, and they want everyone to know. The same is true in your heart. When Christ conquers your heart, that's conquered ground, that's ground that he has conquered It's as if his flag is flying over that heart. And you, as his sheep, his saints, need to defend the ground that he has already conquered. And for those of you who still have the the flag of me, myself, and I flying over your hearts, you need to take it down. You need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can say with Paul, when he wrote to the, the Christians in the city of Colossae, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So we've seen the why. Now the nature, the nature of spiritual combat, which we find in verse 12 of our text. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, of this darkness against the, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Greek word translated here, struggle, is often translated wrestling in classical Greek. The ESV reads that way. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And in this wrestling, um, it's, it's as you picture, right? It's hand-to-hand combat, so to speak. Mano, mano, if you, know, you, you speak Spanish. Paul wishes to paint that picture for the Christians. 
Because you, you live in the trenches, right? You live where Satan is always trying to deceive you. Your adversary is always coming before you, putting things before you. Though you don't see him, he puts things before you and he's fighting for your mind. Let's, let's talk about two points, I think, here that are uh, worth talking about in this, in this verse. And I got these from uh, William Gurnall's, these two points, so to speak, his, the, the Christian in Complete Armor, his book from the 17th century. First, how not to wrestle. How not to wrestle. Uh, we are not to wrestle against God's providence. What is God's providence? You likely know, but I'll read from our countryside distinctive so you're reminded. It defines it in relation to God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is what God is by virtue of being God. He rules. Providence is what God does. He carries out his rule by actually administering every detail in his creation. So sovereignty is what God is. He is the supreme ruler. And providence is what God does. That means that nothing is outside of God's control, right? I mean, from the the largest earthquake to the smallest leaf falling from a tree. It's all part of God's plan. And you know who's included in this plan? Satan's included in this plan. I mentioned that he is God's creation, right? And he was created good. He was created as the most beautiful angel in heaven and was chief among the angels, but that wasn't enough for him. And he wanted to usurp God's position and God cast him out of heaven. Nevertheless, everything he does, even now, when he works evil, is part of God's plan. So what this means is that when difficult times come, we can rest assured that it's part of God's plan and his providence. When difficult times come, we are not to wrestle against those difficult times. Though some of them may be extremely difficult, we can't wrestle against them and against God's plan. Think, think of Job, right? Job was blameless and upright. He was a man that turned away from evil. And then what happened? Satan incited the Lord against him, right? And said, well, yeah, it's because you gave him all these good things. Stretch out your hand against him. And when when that happened, what happened? I mean, it's over the course of a 42-chapter book, but Job began to wrestle with God's goodness. He began to wrestle with God's plan in his life instead of wrestling with this sin and wrestling with Satan. And by the end of the book, you have Job repenting, right? Job 40, chapter 40, verse 2, God says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. So then Job responds in verses 4 and 5, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job learned not to wrestle against God's providence. And recognize the difference, right? I mean, as a Christian, you know, if you've been walking with the Lord anytime, you know that you will face difficult situations. And when those difficult situations come, you have two options. Do I call God into question about this difficult situation and wrestle with his plan for my life? Or do I wrestle with the temptation to, to, to do that, to call God into question? The, te- the temptation uh, to say, you know what, I'm just, I, I, I don't deserve this. You need to wrestle with that sin 
and put that behind you or turn from that instead of wrestling with God's providence. Second, it's important to remember this as we wrestle with sin, that you are a wrestler. Be encouraged that you are a wrestler. What do I mean? You're not a conqueror, right? Christ, as we've, as, as we've said, he's the one that has conquered your heart. He's the one that has rescued you from the domain of darkness. He has conquered sin and death on your behalf, but he has left you as a wrestler. This does not mean that he won't grant you victory over particular sins. He will when you wrestle with them. His grace is with you, but think about it. I mean, you wrestle with one sin, you think you've got that sin pinned down, and then another sin pops its ugly head up over here, or that same sin comes back in a new form, right? We're constantly wrestling with sin in this life. And maybe you're currently wrestling with a sin. Ask yourself, why am I wrestling with this sin? Do I enjoy it? Do I love it? Or am I actually trying to put it to death? Or maybe there, there is no sin that you, you're like, well, I'm not wrestling with this sin right now. And I, I think that's entirely possible to some extent, right? The Lord does give us rest. Although we're never not sinners, the Lord does give us seasons of rest. But consider maybe you, you become complacent. And there is sins in your life, but you're not seeking them out to wrestle with them. Right? Pray with David in Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So be encouraged, Christian, in God's providence, you are a wrestler. And as you wrestle with sin, God makes you more like his son. So we, we know that we're wrestlers, but Paul goes on to describe the nature of this warfare with a bunch of prepositional phrases, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What, what, what does all of this mean? Well, there's a lot to be said here, but recognize that he begins with not against flesh and blood and in the heavenly places, right? This is, denotes what we've been saying all along. This is a spiritual struggle, not a physical struggle. And Paul has in mind here not human rulers, but demonic rulers. However, the way that Satan and his demons often manifest themselves is through human people. I'm not saying, and human rulers, I'm not saying that that means that, you know, everybody that's against God is, is, is demon-possessed or something. But we know this is true from the Old Testament. There's two places in the Old Testament. I don't have time to take you to them. I'll just talk to you about them. But in Ezekiel, I, I encourage you to look them up later, Ezekiel and Isaiah, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we see this. We see that in Ezekiel, the, the, the prophet Ezekiel is talking to the king of Tyre, right? And he's prophesying against him and his prideful heart. And while he's talking to him, God tells him to go back and talk to him again. And the second time he talks to him, it, the language is very clear that it's talking about Satan. And so we see that there are demonic rulers behind kings and princes in this world. And the same is true in Isaiah 14. Although the language is a little bit more mixed, it's clear that the prophet is speaking against the demon behind the king in 
verses 12 and 14. And, and I mean, think about the, the nations today that sit on thrones of lies. You didn't have to watch but a couple minutes, I'm sure none of you did, but maybe you did, of the so-called president of Russia's speech to know that it was full of lies. It's not too much to say that there are demonic systems and forces behind that government. I'm not saying the full country, but I'm saying that government. Or perhaps one that, that hits more home to us. How about Matthew 16:23? Jesus tells his disciples, what does he tell them? He tells them that he has to go to Jerusalem and he must die and raise again. And what does Peter do? He takes the Lord aside. He goes, no way. He's like, that can't happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. And listen, listen to what else he says. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And here we have a, a, a peek into what I would call the, the front lines of this battlefield. What are the front lines of this battlefield? It's our minds. The front lines of this battlefield are our minds. This is where the, the battle rages most heavily. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. In this chapter, Paul is defending God's truth that he had delivered to the Corinthians from false apostles that had come into the church. They were teaching contrary to the truth what, that Paul had taught and even calling Paul into question. So Paul is defending his apostleship and defending the truth. In verse 3, read with me, chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that, that Satan and his system of lies, he's the father of lies, right, was manifesting itself in the Corinthian church. How was it manifesting itself? It was manifesting itself through these false apostles. And Paul had to defend the truth. The false apostles were telling the Corinthians, this is what the truth is. And the, they, were, they, were call, they were calling into question, well, what, what, what Paul had delivered to us and what God had said. You need to do the same. Every, from every direction, you're, you're getting lies and, and different agendas, right? I mean, the social media, news, everything. You need to line it up against what's taught in God's word. I mean, the things that I'm saying from this pulpit this morning... I hope you're not just taking, oh yes, that's definitely, uh, th that's definitely truth, right? You, you, you compare it to what the Word of God says. The same is true when you go listen to Pastor Tom. Any, any true pastor wants you to check what he says against the Word of God. And we have the mind of Christ in this book. We live in a, in a culture that tells us there is no truth, that truth is relative, that, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We can know truth, ladies and gentlemen. It's on the pages of Scripture. Fill your minds with the mind of Christ.
The third and final command this morning is found in verse 13. Turn back to Ephesians with me. Verse 13 of chapter 6, Paul says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is your third major point this morning. The third command, take up the full armor of God or persevere. Persevere. Essentially, this verse is a summary of what Paul had just told us. The command here, take up, is synonymous with Paul's exhortation in verse 11, to put on the full armor of God. But, but why does Paul remind the Ephesians so soon? I mean, he, he just said this. Why is he saying it again? Well, first, one, one reason is because we're spiritually hard-headed, and we need the same truths hammered into our heads over and over again. Also, Satan and his lies, whatever channel they're coming to you through, are constantly coming to you. Right? He's constantly trying to catechize you and get you to think a certain way about the world, get you to think a certain way about yourself, get you to think a, a certain way about other people and about God. And if you're not filling your mind with the words of Christ, then you're filling them with potential lies, deadly lies. And also, I think, you know, Paul is also, like I said, calling us to perseverance here. There's a, there's a sense in which, you know, perhaps you're in a, in a battle with sin right now. And your, your armor is coming loose, right? You need to tighten it back down. Maybe you need to shine it up a little bit. Right? You need to remind yourselves of the truth of the gospel and persevere. And yes, in, in perseverance, Christ is the one who holds us fast, right? When you're his child, he's not, he's not going to let you go. But at the same time, he has left you as a wrestler until he returns. And you need to wrestle against that sin. You know, there are a lot of people who have made a profession of faith and then turn from that profession of faith. They, they fight sin for a, a little bit, um, and then it gets hard and it gets tiring and, you know, the old, the old life was easier and it was more fun. Um, and they take their eyes off of Christ and put it back on themselves. And they turn from Christ. I mean, we know that those people are never really saved, but it's important to remember to persevere. And, and perseverance, it's a curious doctrine because it, it involves things that seem contradictory to us, right? It's both resting in Christ, but also running or fighting, right? And those two things, I mean, resting and running, I mean, I don't know. Some people like running for miles and miles and miles, but that's not resting to me, right? So how is it that we're resting and running? How is it that we're resting and fighting at the same time? Let's, let's examine them. First, like I said, we're resting in the finished work of Christ, right? The, the ground has been conquered by Christ, or, or even better yet, more theologically accurate, right? Christ is the grounds of our salvation, right? He is the, the perfect God-man that came to earth and lived the perfect life. He filled, fulfilled God's law perfectly, something you could never do. And then he died the death that you deserve. And then he rose again on the third 
day proving that he was the God-man and proving that he did appease God's wrath. This, these truths, those are the basic gospel truths that we're to rest in. But we're also to, to fight or, or, yeah, fight as, as Ephesians 6 says, right? And as I thought about this final verse and what Paul is trying to portray here in Perseverance, I was flipping through some, some different books in my library and I kept coming back to the illustrations that uh, John Bunyan uses in his Pilgrim's Progress. Has anybody here read that book, Pilgrim's Progress? Good, most of you, right? Um, if you haven't, right, Christian's on a journey to the celestial city, heaven. And as he's journeying there, he, he comes across all different things that illustrate truths in the Christian life. And early on in his journey, he meets a man named Interpreter. And Interpreter takes him into a room. He takes him into a house, actually, and takes him to different rooms. And in those different rooms are pictures or illustrations of different things in the Christian life that we face. And he takes him into one room, and there's this big fireplace burning, right? And there's a man throwing water on this fire, but it just keeps burning. And Christian's like, okay, like, what, what does this mean, right? And the interpreter takes him back around the backside of the fire, and there's a man sitting behind the fire with a, a vessel of oil feeding the fire. You know, and this is a picture of Christ, the interpreter says. The, the, the fires that the grace of God begin in your heart Christ will never let go out, even though Satan is continually trying to throw water on it and continue, continuing to try to put it out. This is the, the, the resting side of assurance. We rest that Christ will never let that fire go out. And then, interpreter immediately takes Christian to another room. And in this room, as they come into the room, there's this scene of a, of a giant palace. And as they get closer and closer to the palace... They see a bunch of guards guarding the palace. And a man is fighting his way through all of these guards. He's covered in armor. He has his sword out. And he's fighting against all these guards. And he gets wounded a bunch of times, but he keeps on fighting. And eventually, he's allowed entrance into the city. And that's a picture of the fighting side of perseverance. Right? You're going to be wounded. Christ is... Is, is there's going to be times within God's providence that you're allowed to be wounded by sin, right? That's never God's will for your life, but it's, we live in a fallen world. And as we're wounded, we continue to fight, right? Because one day we're, we're going to be granted a- access to the celestial city. It's a battle. It's a battle that first Christ had won on the cross, and he conquered the ground of your heart. And then you continue to fight as you submit to his lordship. So we've seen this morning a couple different commands. We've first seen that we must humble ourselves and be strengthened in the Lord. Second, we've seen that we need to put on the full armor of God and stand firm, right? That's the, the what and the how. And then finally, the third major command is that we must persevere. We must continue to fight and maintain the ground that Christ has already conquered. So I want to give you a, a couple of applications this morning. The first, I want you to remember that the mind is the front lines of the spiritual battle. The mind is the front lines of the spiritual battle. If you aren't actively filling your minds with scripture, it's being filled with something else. 
right? I mean, we think of, sometimes we think of spiritual warfare and it's like, I don't know, we picture demons and angels clashing in the heavens and I don't know, maybe that, that, that happens, but I mean, we don't see any of that. The spiritual warfare manifests itself in a battle for our minds and how you think. Are you thinking according to God's word or are you thinking according to your own way and according to what the world tells you? Second, enlist your fellow Christians in this battle. Enlist your fellow Christians in this battle. This is not a battle to be fought on your own. Yes, wrestling is a spiritual sport, but Christians are not wrestling for sport. We're wrestling for holiness. And life and death is at stake, and we should not wrestle alone. Third, Christ has already won the victory. I've said this multiple times this morning. Christ has already won the victory. This does not mean that we take God's armor off uh, we lay down his sword. Oh, Christ is one. No big deal. I'm just going to chill out. No, what this is, is it's sound motivation for us to keep fighting. The war has been won. The war is over. I, I, don't, I don't particularly like the, the, the phrase spiritual warfare because the war has been won. Yes, it's warfare in this sense, but we're fighting battles and we're in combat. The war has been won. Christ has won it for us. And fourth, if you're a reader, I would encourage you to pick up uh, William Gurnall's 17th century work, The Christian in Complete Armor. There's an abridged version by Banner of the Truth. Banner of Truth, it's a, a three-volume set. Uh, it's a formidable work, but it's small paperbacks, it's easy reading, and it has been medicine to my soul on more than one occasion. Charles Spurgeon said of this work, he said, it is a peerless and priceless work. Every line is full of wisdom, every sentence suggestive. The whole book has been preached over scores of times, and it is, in my judgment, the best thought breeder in all of my library. And finally, if you've realized today that you're on the wrong side, if you've realized today that you're still in Satan's army and you are still shackled to your sin, take that flag down of self and put up Christ's flag. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that you are such a good God. You are so honest in all of your ways, perfectly truthful. You've left, left us here knowing that the war has been won, but that the battle still rages. Lord, as we continue to fight against our sin and the schemes of Satan, we ask for your grace. We ask that we would use your armor. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done on our behalf. We pray in his most precious and holy name. Amen.